I say this is part of a talk on right effort because I myself got quite caught in the beginning of my practice in thinking that right effort was excluding these places, that right effort was somehow grasping for a concentrated state of mind that was rapturous, that was easy and blissful, and that this was the practice, and that every time I felt rage or disappointment or contraction and discomfort or severe discomfort, I thought somehow I wasn't making enough effort and that I wasn't doing it properly enough. And if only I strived harder and if only I tried more to really grab that breath, to really hold on to it, then I would get to this place and then I would be clearly on a spiritual path. And this understanding was um, reinforced and supported by a lot of the early sort of magazines that I read, like Yoga Journal, for example, and some of those ads. Enlightenment in 14 days and you would see someone in bliss. You wouldn't see them crying and all contracted and hunched up. They would be in this sort of incredible bliss. And all these, all these ads in, um, talked about bliss and talked about divine happiness. And they never once mentioned any of the difficulties and the hard places, the distracted mind, the irritations, and the disappointments. And so I tried valiantly in the early days. I stayed up late past the last evening sitting, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. I was up in the morning. I sat through breaks. <laughs> And I got more and more contracted and tighter and tighter and more and more miserable. <laughs> and finally, I went to my teacher, and um, some of this was in Goenka retreat, um, because Goenka is, um, makes a, uh, how can I say, delivers a very, very strong Dharma talk on making more effort. And he, he just says, make more effort, make more effort. And you go for an interview, and whatever you said, he would say, make more effort, strive harder, which I did. So I went to Ruth Dennison and, um, in, in a retreat after being to this one retreat in particular at, at Goenka, and I said, I just can't do it. I just, I just can't. I had such high hopes for finding my freedom, and there was something about this practice that really attracted me. And I just can't do it. And I really felt so sad. And she said, well, don't. <laughs> don't do it. She said, don't sweep the kitchen floor. <laughs> she said, don't worry about it. <laughs> and actually, it was very liberating. <laughs> and it was on that retreat or maybe it was the next retreat, I can't know. It was on that retreat of finally um, not spending very much time in the zendo and sweeping um, not only the kitchen floor, but it's in the desert, all the sand, of all the concrete surrounding all the buildings. It was a lot of sweeping. <laughs> and one, one, day coming, one day coming into the zendo and just sitting there, and I don't, many of you probably don't know Ruth Dennison, but she... Um, doesn't teach in the traditional way. So 
we were all teaching and she came into the meditation um, room and the door slammed and her little dog, come, come, she says to her little dog, Ubikin, come, she says in this totally loud, and of course, all our concentration and whatever we were doing is absolutely disturbed. And in that moment, I, I realized that there was nowhere to go, that there was nowhere to go, that I was trying to go somewhere and that there was nowhere to go. And a deep and profound opening happened. <coughs> you would think after this experience <laughs> that <laughs> my striving would have ceased and come into balance, but it hasn't. <laughs> it has been an ongoing process to um, check over and over again to see if there is some subtle feeding of my effort to avoid what I don't like, to go somewhere different than I am. Each time I notice that, I come into a profound relationship with myself. It is said that without effort, without courageous effort, that the Dharma and our freedom cannot unfold. It is said that you could know a lot about the Dharma, but without effort you could not realize the Dharma. In fact, in many ways, all the path, or this whole path, depends on our effort, on our bringing ourselves over and over again back to ourselves. But that effort rests on understanding, that effort rests on our vision, that effort rests on our intuition of knowing something, and perhaps not always verbally, of what our potential is. And that potential is spoken of as wholesome. That potential is spoken of as beautiful, as powerful, and as free. And those words necessarily include all of us. Our beauty and each one of us here is infinitely beautiful. Our power, each one of us here is infinitely powerful, rests on the understanding that beauty and power, that freedom, comes from opening to all of our experiences, that our effort is the holding of all those experiences rather than the rejection of some of them. Effort rarely rests on trusting ourselves, on knowing even in the midst of our deepest difficulties that what we're doing is healing, that what we're doing is right. And that when we really connect to that, when we connect to that understanding that what we're doing here is deeply healing, then it frees up a tremendous amount of energy. 
it frees up a tremendous amount of willingness to make the effort. It is said that effort brings about faith, wisdom, concentration, and mindfulness, which are called the five faculties in this teaching. Faith because when we over and over again make the effort and pull our energies back towards ourselves, we start to know in a very deep way that what we're doing is worthwhile, that actually there is nothing more important than what we're doing. It, it helps us to reconnect also with the understanding that each one of us is not alone in this process, that we are held not only here in this particular community and not only by those of your friends and other members of your Sangha outside of here, but that actually we are held in a lineage, uh, um, uh, an energetic transference of teachings that go back for thousands and thousands of years. Effort helps us to reconnect with the understanding that we actually inherit that open heart and wisdom from people before us, from the people before them and from the people before them, actually through eons of time. And that it is an incredible blessing to have received these particular teachings. The Buddha said that if you take all the grains that make up the earth in this universe, which is uncountable, just billions upon billions upon billions of grains of sand that probably just make up this area of this floor. And he said, if you just take a pinch of it and put it on your thumbnail, that's how few beings actually come into contact with spiritual teachings of liberation. He said that if you come into contact with spiritual teachings of liberation, you are incredibly and uniquely blessed. Effort awakens that and is supported by that understanding. That we, each one of us here, because we're here, are given incredible conditions in our lives in order to do what we're doing. And that it's a gift. And the teachings say that by thinking about that, by thinking about the conditions in our life, the conditions of our body and our mind, that we're not um, too sick to practice, that we're not um, extremely unbalanced mentally, too unbalanced to practice, that actually we have the conditions to practice and that by thinking about the conditions in our lives, it awakens effort because we understand how unique they are and how blessed we are. Effort helps concentration because it helps us to bring ourselves back to what the present experience is. In this case, to our breathing, to our bodies, to our walking, 
to the experiences of eating, of hearing, of seeing, to the experiences of feeling, and to thinking, to, to be present to all the different fields of our experience. Without effort, right, there wouldn't be the energy to hold that relationship of awareness. So in the Eightfold Path, the last three factors are effort, concentration, and mindfulness because they're seen as integrally linked. And those three are seen as critical to the kind of opening of our hearts so that we can accept our full humanity, so that we can stretch ourselves to include all of ourselves. In the Tibetan and Zen traditions, there's a, a whole path called the Bodhisattva path, which is to practice freedom for the liberation of all beings. Cultivating effort is seen as the path of the Bodhisattva because we understand that we're not doing it for ourselves. I remember, in uh, particularly in a three-month retreat, um, n- not being able to sleep, which is very characteristic, <laughs> and uh, wa- walking in um, in in this—it's kind of like a prison downstairs in the, in at IMS. It's the cellar and it's sort of all these pipes and hardly any windows and um, concrete floor and this, these very, very thin carpets and thinking, oh my God, how am I going to get through this night? You know, it's like hours and hours stretching ahead of me and I really wanted to sleep and I couldn't sleep. And, and um, walking and thinking, okay, I'm going to take this walk for all the people, I'm going to take this step for all the people in prison. I'm going to take this step for all the people who are in hospitals right now. And then I'd have to get specific for everyone suffering from heart attacks, for everyone suffering from paralysis and so on and so forth. And actually, it kept me going for hours, you know, to connect with that feeling that what we're doing is not just for ourselves, that each step each moment, each breath, we take in the field of our awareness and with the softness of our kindness is an energy that grows in this universe. It's, it's an energetic field that grows and is seen to really contribute to the scales of what's happening. So it might be that during these days you come to places where you feel like you can't really go on anymore, that it's just hellish. And it might be helpful to think about all those beings who will benefit from your practice. One of the main supports for effort is renunciation. And I want to read 
what this um, woman, Marion Milner, says about her process of coming to see what's important. I had set out to try and observe moments of happiness and find out what they depended on. But I had discovered that different things made me happy when I looked at my experience and when I did not. The act of looking was somehow a force in itself which changed my whole being. When I first began at the end of each day to go through what had happened and pick out what seemed best to me, I had had quite unexpected results. Before I began this experiment, when I had drifted through life unquestioningly, I had measured my life in terms of circumstances. I had thought I was happy when I was having what was generally considered a good time. But when I began to try and balance up each day's happiness, I found that there were certain moments which had a special quality of their own, a quality which seemed almost independent of what was going on around me, since they occurred sometimes on the most trivial occasions. Gradually, I had come to the conclusion that these were moments when I had, by some chance, stood aside and looked at my experience, looked with a wide focus, wanting nothing and prepared for anything. I became aware that happiness does matter. I was as sure of that as I was alive. Happiness not only needs no justification, but that it is also the only final test of whether what I am doing is right for me. Only, of course, Happiness is not the same as pleasure. It includes the pain of losing as well as the pleasure of finding. By keeping a diary of what made me happy, I had discovered that happiness came when I was most widely aware. So I had finally come to the conclusion that my task was to become more and more aware, more and more understanding, but an understanding that was not at all the same thing as intellectual comprehension. And by finding that in order to be more and more aware, I had to be more and more still. I had not only come to see through my own eyes, instead, wait, I had not only come to see through my own eyes instead of that second hand, but I had also finally come to discover what was the way of escape from the imprisoning island of my own self-consciousness? She really describes beautifully what essentially are the ingredients for our happiness. And in a way, she's talking about renunciation. Because Renunciation is based on the understanding that ultimately there is nothing outside of ourselves that can bring us the happiness that we desire and that we can live with and in. Not that things outside of ourselves aren't important, not that they don't sometimes serve us on our path, but that essentially and ultimately the movement of our mind through our eyes, through hearing, through tasting, through touch, through 
the desire for some kind of emotional adventure or even intellectual one, that that movement takes us actually further and further away from ourselves. And that it is indeed what she says, this turning inward to look at our not wanting tends to express itself in trying to squish, control and manipulate things outside of ourselves to fit those particular desires. You know? No, I want you to be this way, you know? And we really feel, don't we, that our happiness is totally dependent on that person or being behaving in a certain way. No, I can't have my bedroom this colour paint. It has to change, or this bedspread, or no, the, 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 I have to go out and eat Chinese food. Nothing else is going to make me happy. That, that, and, and it's, not, it's not bad. It's not wrong. It's just understanding the relationship that exists and what actually brings us happiness and what doesn't. Those things certainly bring about a pleasure and a happiness that results from pleasure. But it's also true to say, and that's why we're all here, that that happiness doesn't last. That it is based on something that is really temporary. And that unfortunately, it's very temporary. I mean, sometimes, you know, we can think about, I don't know if any of you have thought about, oh, I wonder what's for lunch, oh, let's go for lunch. And you know, and you think about it, or maybe you're going out to dinner or something like that, and oh, you know, I wonder what we're going to eat. And there's one mouthful, and your mind is on a million thoughts already. It's like gone, you know? It's the, the pleasure that comes from sensual experience from seeing, from tasting, from hearing, is, is as temporary as a fog that descends and then dissipates when the sun comes out. It is totally insubstantial. And what these teachings say is that when we understand that, and when in some way we can begin to say, I'm letting go of that, I'm letting go of that distraction, I'm letting go of that desire. I'm letting go of that irritation and coming back into the sort of that sort of connection with ourselves where we're present, we begin to deepen and we begin to free ourselves. Effort rests on that and effort also supports us in letting go. And we can practice renunciation in all kinds of ways. It might be that we have an itch in our nose and we're meditating and that itch is, is just part of our restless, anxious mind and, you know, there's the movement of the mind. Oh, a bit of relief from sitting with my breath. Oh, I'll scratch my nose, you know. And in understanding that distraction is just 
uh, the mind trying to, you know, trying to find some sort of relief, letting go and staying with the experience of whatever's present, we actually come to a healing. When I go, um, we have, um, unfortunately, the only supermarket, the only store that sells organic food where we live is like Whole Foods here. It's called Bread and Circus, and we call it Bread and Money because it's so expensive. <laughs> and um, you all probably know, I mean, this incredible array of food. It's just amazing. And when I go shopping, I notice that sort of light in my mind of all these cheeses <laughs> and look at all these jams and everything else. You know, and, and so I practice renunciation. I don't get everything I want, not that I could afford it. But this, you know, I say, okay, you get one thing that's sort of a treat, you know, and that's it. And there's something about it that feels tremendously healing. It really feels as though I'm loving myself. It feels as though I'm taking care of myself. I do it too when um, there's um, that time in a relationship, you know, where someone says, oh, your turn to, you know, it's your turn to do the dishes, it's your turn to get up and make breakfast or whatever it is. You know, it's your turn and you have that kind of niggledy, well, it's not my turn, I did it yesterday, I don't want to do it today. You know, practicing renunciation, letting go of the holding and saying, okay. It brings about a tremendous stability and sweetness of being. And the funny thing is, it doesn't feel like it in the moment when we're caught, you know? It feels like the worst thing in the world to renounce, you know? But actually, it's tremendously beneficial. Sometimes, distraction has a place in our practice. Sometimes, when we get very tight or when we are, we feel like we're at our wit's end, then we want to take a moment to say, I'm escaping. Where is that recent murder mystery? Give it to me, I need a break. Sometimes distraction, when we understand why we're doing it, is in the service of our practice. So. There are times when we'll say, and Eric said it today, I have to go for a cup of tea, I have to distract myself. Fine, totally fine. We understand we're giving ourselves a break so that we can come back to ourselves again. It's not like the relentless effort that I talked about at the beginning. The effort we're talking about is a sweet and soft one that acknowledges where we are and says, I can do this now, I can let go, and at other times, wait, that's it. I've had enough, I'm taking a break, I'm getting distracted, you know, and then coming back again. Mary Oliver writes a beautiful poem about renunciation. She says, have you ever seen anything in your life more wonderful than the way the sun every evening relaxed and easy floats towards the horizon and into the clouds or the hills 
or the rumpled sea, and is gone. And how it slides again out of the blackness every morning on the other side of the world like a red flower, streaming upward on its heavenly oils, say, on a morning in early summer at its perfect imperial distance. And have you ever felt for anything such wild love? Do you think there is anywhere in any language a word billowing enough for the pleasure that fills you as the sun reaches out as it warms you, as you stand there empty-handed? Or have you too turned from this world? Or have you too gone crazy for the power of things? For the power for things? Have you gone crazy for the power for things? Our effort is based on the intuitive vision that each one carries, each one here, that we are beautiful and that we are whole. Our effort is inspired by our vision of a humanity that includes all that is difficult, distracting, irritating, painful, and full of sorrow. Our effort requires that we love ourselves. Our effort requires that we are patient with ourselves, that we hold ourselves more dear than anything else in the universe because each of us is who we are, unique. Our effort asks us to believe in ourselves. to hold that vision not only for ourselves but for all those beings who have lost contact with their vision of beauty. Our effort demands that we hold it for them as well. May each moment in this retreat be a moment that is inspired by our understanding of our wholeness and our beauty and of our possibility of coming into a relationship with ourselves and our lives that is unhindered, not obstructed, that is free. May each one of us here never give up. 